G'day and welcome to the Dolby Anglican Podcast. My name is David and I'm one of the ministers at Dolby Anglican Parish. It's good to have you with us. Today we're starting a new series called Frontline, Good News from Dr. Luke. And today's sermon focuses on Luke chapter 4, verses 22 to 30, and it's called Good News Rejected. We hope you enjoy the sermon. Luke 4, 21 to 30. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we have heard you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of a hill on which the town was built, in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Well, as I said earlier, today is the beginning of a new series, and it's looking at the Gospel of Luke. Now, Luke is the 42nd book in the Bible, and it begins with these very interesting words in the introduction. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down by those who were from the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Luke is a frontline worker. He's a physician, a doctor, and a historian who became a Christian shortly after Jesus died and rose again. The book is named after him, and it's the longest account of Jesus' life we have. Luke interviewed eyewitnesses to Jesus' miracles, and friends of Jesus who saw him teaching, who saw him die, who met him after he'd risen again, and who even saw him ascend into heaven. Luke writes his account for someone called Theophilus. Now, Theophilus may have been a community, a community of people, or it may have been a person. But the name Theophilus means God-lover. Theophile, God-lover. So these people are interested in God. And Luke writes so that they might have assurance of what they have heard about Jesus. At St. John's, our purpose is to know Jesus and make Jesus known. So for the next five weeks, and for another 12 Sundays throughout the year, we're going to be looking at Luke from the front line, and his front line account of Jesus' life. Now we've picked an awkward Sunday uh, to start this series, because it's the second half of the passage we looked at last week. 
That said, these verses are key to understanding the whole book of Luke. And so it's actually a perfect Sunday to start. One of the reasons this passage is a little bit awkward is because Luke here is doing something shifty. Now, I don't mean that he's doing something disingenuous um, or deceptive. It's just that he moves this story from Jesus' life, which probably happened a couple of years into his ministry, to the front end of his gospel. Why does he do this? He does it because understanding what happens to Jesus in the synagogue is key to understanding the whole book of Luke and indeed Jesus himself. And the reaction that Jesus gets is important for our understanding of how people respond to Jesus. Now, at first, it seems like Jesus is being received really well. He goes to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue, as was his custom. Things seem to be going well. Jesus goes into the synagogue and reads from the book of Isaiah, proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. What's more, he claims that he's the fulfillment of this passage. And at first, it seems like the people love it. Sermons about God's goodness rarely offend people. But Jesus has a challenging message for us. And so in Luke 22, 4.22, he writes, All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. Today we're going to see how Jesus goes from a local boy who does good to being proof that familiarity breeds contempt. We'll see that no one puts Jesus in a corner. And we'll see that you can't stop the gospel, even when it's rejected. So first of all, Jesus is the local boy who does good. Jesus grew up in Nazareth, working for his adoptive father, Joseph. And as he preaches, the locals are all impressed. Every eye is on Jesus, and the service is off to a good start. They can't believe this carpenter's kid can wax lyrical from passages in Isaiah. But this is where the response begins to change. Yes, people want the year of the Lord's favor. They want the poor to be satisfied, prisoners to be set free, and the blind to be healed. But can a local boy really do any of this? They'd seen Jesus in nappies. They knew his brothers and sisters. Perhaps they'd heard Joseph swear when he banged his thumb on a hammer or something. <laughs> Perhaps they'd heard Mary gossiping about a relative. Can we trust a person who comes from this family? And then Jesus begins to preach in verse 23. He says, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Now, Jesus spent much of his early ministry preaching, teaching, and healing around a place called Capernaum. Capernaum is in the north. And it's a long way away from the capital in Jerusalem, which was the center of religious power. But there, Jesus received a really good following. He started to see people coming to him, becoming disciples, and bringing their sick to be healed. But here in his hometown in Nazareth, 
a little bit down south over there, they can't take him seriously. Nazareth was and still is a very poor town. And people used to joke, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Matthew and Mark tell us that the people in Nazareth took offense to Jesus, not because of the quality or the content of his preaching, but because of tall poppy syndrome. Who does this kid think he is? He's not anything great. I remember four or five years ago, uh, people talking about Ash Barty. Um, and uh, growing up in high school, um, everyone talked about Ipswich as, um, as, as a horrible place. Um, and, and I remember people commenting and saying, well, Ash Barty, okay, she's doing great, but she's going to fail like all Australians. Um, okay, she's, she's number one, but she hasn't won any Grand Slams. Local people so often doubt their own people. And while Jesus was able to perform a lot of miracles in another town around Capernaum, only a few people came to Jesus for healing in Nazareth because of their lack of faith. The local boy who does good is undermined and not trusted in his hometown. A prophet is never accepted in their hometown. That's how Jesus would say it. The people were more intent on cutting him down than coming to him in faith. And it's here that Jesus tells two stories which really fire up the crowd. First, Jesus tells a story from 1 Kings 17. He says, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. At the time of this famine, many, many years before Jesus, about 800 years before Jesus, the people of Israel had turned their backs on God. Even their king, King Ahab, was building altars and idols to a demon named Baal. Elijah spoke against this, and that made the king angry. So God told him to get out of town and go to a place called Zarephath, where everyone worshipped Baal. As God sends Elijah to Zarephath, he tells him that a widow there will supply him with food. And so Elijah gets to Zarephath and finds the first widow, and he, and he says to her, give me a drink. And as she goes off to go and get him a drink, he says, oh, by the way, go and get me some bread. And then she utters this chilling statement. She says, as surely as the Lord your God lives, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son so that we may eat it and die. Remember, there's a famine on and the widows were the poorest of the poor. And this widow has an orphan boy and she's a bar worshipper. And Elijah, the prophet of the Lord, comes to her and says, give me some bread. And she's like, no way, man. This is my last meal. And then Elijah says something that challenges this woman to the core and gives her an incredible choice. He says, don't be afraid. 
Go home and do as you have said, but first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me, and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. Notice while everyone in Israel is turning their backs on God, this woman says, as surely as the Lord your God lives. She's desperate and she's preparing for her last meal, but she recognizes that Elijah's God is a living God. And ultimately, this woman is challenged to take a step of faith. Is she going to trust this crazy foreigner and his God and give him part of her last meal? Or will she go with plan A? I encourage you to go home and read the rest of this story for yourself. It's in 1 Kings 17 and it's amazing. But long story short, the widow decides to trust Elijah and his God. In taking this step, her life, the life of her son and the life of Elijah are all saved. All saved because she suspends her skepticism for a moment and takes a chance on God. Jesus shares this story with the people in Nazareth because again, God's people are turning their backs on him right in God's hometown. Right in front of them, they have a choice. They can trust this new thing that God is doing or stick with what they know. But before we look at their reaction, uh, let's take a second look at the other story that Jesus tells. Now, Elijah had a sidekick or an understudy or a student who took over him. And confusingly, his name was Elisha. It says Elijah and Elisha. Elijah, um, Elisha is the mini Elijah. Elisha also preached against the king of Israel and his worship of Baal and the people of his day who turned their backs on God. And so what did they do? They tried to kill him. But again, God protected Elisha. One day, a commander of the enemy army named Naaman came to him for healing. Now, Naaman was one of the best commanders in the whole army of the Assyrians. The problem was, is the Assyrians, again, worshipped a different god, and they would regularly attack the people of Israel and take away slaves. Oh, that's good emphasis. <laughs> yeah, don't do this. <laughs> don't take slaves. <laughs> that's it. Whoa, gee. That's a takeaway for you. I better be careful with what I touch, hey? <laughs> now, Naaman had a problem. He was, he was a great commander, he was a great general, but he had leprosy. Lepre is, leprosy uh, is pretty much eradicated in Australia, but it's this horrible skin disease where your skin basically falls off, it basically rots on you. And at the time, they had no way of curing it. But Naaman had a slave girl who he'd taken from Israel, and one day, she comes up to him and says, Sir, there's a prophet in Israel who might be able to heal you. Will you go to him? And Naaman is desperate. 
So what does he do? He takes 340 kilograms of silver, 69 kilograms of gold, and 10 sets of clothes, which would have cost millions of dollars in today's money. And he goes to Elisha. He humbles himself before Elisha. But when he gets to Elisha's place, Elisha doesn't come out to meet him. Naman would have expected that. He's a big, important, powerful general after all. And he's got some really good gifts. But Elisha doesn't want any of his gifts. And so he sends one of his servants out to tell Naman that he will be healed. All he needs to do is go to the River Jordan about 40 kilometers away and bathe there seven times. 2 Kings chapter 5 tells the rest of that story. Naman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. So he's going, this is not, this is not on. I've, I've humbled myself, I've brought my gifts and now this upstart little prophet doesn't want to come out and wave his hand over me. Are not the Abana and Parfa, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Aren't our rivers at home better than Israel's rivers? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned off and went in a rage. He's not putting his faith in Elisha. He doesn't care about his God. But then all of a sudden something changes. Naman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So Naman went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Again, Naman is a foreigner who worships a foreign god, but he takes a leap of faith and trusts the God of Israel, and he's healed. At the end of this story, again, I encourage you to go home and read it for yourself, uh, 2 Kings 5. Uh, Naman actually asked Elijah if he can take Elisha, if he can take some of, some of the ground on which Elisha stands home so that he can put it down in his house so he can go there to pray to the God of Elisha, the God of Israel. He becomes a believer. And the point Jesus is making in quoting this story in the synagogue is clear. While all the people of Nazareth doubt him because he's just a local boy, foreigners will follow him because his teaching is true and he is from God. Now, Jesus isn't preaching to the choir here. He's actually preaching against the choir. He's saying just as people, the people of Israel rejected God because they were hard-hearted, so you now are rejecting me. And just as Elijah and Elisha brought healing and good news of God to foreigners who received it, so people you wouldn't think would follow me are going to follow me and are trusting in God right now. Do you see how offensive this message is? Jesus is saying, you people sitting in church today need God's grace just as much as a pagan widow and a leprous foreigner. And you need to repent and turn to God just as much as they did. You need God's kindness just as much as anyone. 
And Luke tells us how the people react in verse 28. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built to throw him off the cliff. The people are so angry with Jesus and his message that they instantly try to execute him. Familiarity breeds contempt, and a prophet is never accepted in his hometown. Now, it would be easy to pretend that we're not like the people of Nazareth, but are we really that different? If Jesus came to church today and told us to change our ways, would we? As the crowds bay for Jesus' blood and try to throw him off a cliff, Luke tells us he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. I love that little detail. Jesus has this angry mob that are about to push him off a cliff and he just goes, nah, see you later. <laughs> Luke doesn't explain how Jesus did this, but it's clear that no one puts Jesus in a corner. Commentator Dale Ralph Davis points out that this account of Jesus is really the gospel in a nutshell. Jesus has good news beyond measure. Some will accept it and others will reject it. Jesus has power to calm storms and walk through mobs, but ultimately he will take up his cross and die of his own volition for those who hate him and reject him because they won't listen. Davis says, speaking loosely, the crucifixion begins at Nazareth. Jesus comes back to take what belongs to God and usher in an age of the Lord's favour. And friends, we have two options. We can get on board and find healing and wholeness in him, or we can ignore Jesus and find ourselves outside of God's favour and grace. We live in a moment in history when this is exactly what is happening. Churches are dying in historically Christian countries where everyone takes Jesus and his church for granted. And in the meantime, churches are booming in places that were once closed off to the gospel. The question for us today is, are we going to be like the people in Nazareth, hard-hearted and stiff-necked? Will we ignore and take offence to Jesus? Or will we embrace him and the changes he wants to make in our lives? We also need to ask ourselves, are there people who wouldn't feel welcome in our church? Are there people who you wouldn't think of inviting over for a meal? Are there people whose lives are so messy that we think they're unworthy of our time? This is hard news, but it's good news. And so as we wrap up, we need to see that even though the good news is rejected, it never stops being good news. 
even though Jesus' own people will reject him and try to kill him, he never stops loving them and goes to the cross to save them. Let's never take God's kindness and mercy for granted and never assume that we're fine without God. God wants to change our preconceptions and grow us in ways we could never imagine. You can't stop the gospel. The question is, will you reject it or embrace it? Let's pray. Loving Lord God, we thank you and praise you for your word and that it is a light to our feet and a lamp to our paths. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to embrace you, to take hold of all you have to show us this year, to live lives of repentance and sanctification for your name's sake. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.